Please take your Bibles this morning and turn to Luke 6. Verses 12 through 26 this morning. Assuming spirit-mindedness. Two weeks ago, we emphasized in our Thanksgiving message that Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead bodily and, and that we are complete in Him. That passage from which we gleaned that was specifically Colossians 2. And as we considered that together, uh, the, the call that Paul made in that passage was specifically that as we have received Christ, even so we should walk in Christ. That there is a definitive line between salvation and sanctification where a person truly can have received Christ, but not actually be walking in Christ. Just like any action we do in this life, our actions are not normally in full spontaneous. They begin in the mind. We don't just walk down the street and all of a sudden involuntarily do things. Uh, We have a thought and then that thought works itself out in an action. Now it may be a rash thought. It may be a thought that just popped into our mind. But it starts in the mind and it works itself out in the body uh, with a choice, a choice that we make, a determination toward one end or another. And often that determination is made based upon an understanding of perhaps personal advantage or perhaps the advantage of someone that we love, or it's a choice made because of personal disadvantage, because we don't want to do something. My daughters uh, make these choices all the time. They, they have choices to make, and those choices oftentimes come down to personal advantage or disadvantage. If I do this, then... I will be blessed. If I do this, then I will get in trouble. Uh, We have a time limit for our children on meals now. That has become a necessity uh, because our children like to dawdle, so we start a timer. And if they finish in time before that timer, if they are diligent in eating, then they have the opportunity to partake of things after the meal if there's anything to partake in. If they do not finish before the meal, then they will have to take what they did not finish and eat it for the next meal, and they'll get nothing else in between. And so their decision to eat diligently is not necessarily based on the fact that they want to eat diligently, but the fact that there is a personal advantage to them if they do and a disadvantage if they don't. And oftentimes, this is how we assess situations. This is how we make decisions. We do what we do or we don't do what we don't do because of what we believe about that action or that inaction and what it will mean for us, how it will benefit or be a detriment to us. Yet we see throughout the world differing opinions about actions and consequences, don't we? Some people believe certain actions are beneficial while others believe that they are not. Some people see certain actions as wrong while others Do not. So diverse are opinions about nearly everything that there's hardly one desire or opinion where we could not find support for it if we truly wanted to go in that direction. If I wanted to go in any direction spiritually, I could find a book that would support that desire. I could find a theologian of sorts that could point, that would would, would encourage me and make me feel good about going in that way. Anything. You name it, you can find it. You can find justification for just about 
anything in this world. And this puts us in a difficult place, a place where we stare at a panorama of cultural opinions and we wonder what is right and what is wrong. What is truth? Should I set my mind upon what my parents say because they are my parents? Should I set my mind upon what my pastor says because he's my pastor? Should I set my mind upon what my president says because he's my president? Should I go find a rich guy and set my mind upon what he says because he's rich? Who should I listen to? Who should I trust? How can I set goals for my life until I have something to aim for? And in Luke 6, Jesus gives us something to aim for. He gives us a way of thinking which, when it works itself out into a way of living, will bring you spiritual success. And today we're going to focus on the way of thinking, a mindset shift that I hope many of you have gone through. Perhaps some of you are going through, perhaps some of you have not yet gone through, but you need to. A shift to spirit-mindedness, a shift to seeing this world in light of spiritual instead of in light of physical. And then over the next several weeks following this, as we get into Luke 6, verses 27 and following, all the way to 49, we're going to see Jesus take these, this, this concept of spirit-mindedness and give some definitive commands about how to live that out into Christ-likeness. Spirit-mindedness becoming Christ-likeness. This success will not necessarily be success by man's perspective or in in the way man would view success. But by God's perspective, what Jesus will present over the next several weeks of our study is God's success. God's perspective of success. Which, by the way, is the only perspective that matters. And if we, the men and women in this room, can assume this mindset, if we can wrap our heads around what Jesus will teach us in these verses and the verses to come, we will become a very, very special church. We will be positioned to do very great things for God. We pick up in verses 12 and 13, and we actually pick up with Jesus calling his 12 apostles. We read, And it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose 12 whom also he named apostles. These 12 men would have the privilege of interacting with Jesus in a way that the rest of Jesus' disciples did not necessarily get to do. They would be with him at all times, learning from him, seeing him work, even being given authority by Jesus to do some of the things that he did, to heal and to uh, perform miracles in his name. So Jesus went into a mountain, the text tells us, and there he spent the whole night in prayer Unto God. Like all men, prayer was Jesus' link to the mind and the will of the Father. And as the selection of the twelve was an event of incredible importance, Jesus bathed that decision in the time that it deserved in personal prayer. What an example to us. It then being day, Jesus calls his disciples together who had followed him. And he chooses 12 of them. And we find that list in verses 14 to 16. Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called Zelotes, and Judas the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, which also was the traitor. So we see the 12 names here. Simon would be the one that Jesus would end up calling Peter, 
Uh, We'll learn plenty about him over the course of this gospel. Andrew was Simon's brother. James and John were the sons of Zebedee. Um, These were the four men that Jesus called on the day where he told Peter to cast out, to go out in the boat, to let down his nets, and the great draught of fishes came in so much so that the the boat began to sink, and they had to call their comrades over to get all the fish into the boat and then bring them to shore. Those comrades were James and John. Peter and Andrew were on the one boat, James and John on the other. Jesus said, follow me. All four of them leave their nets, and they go to follow Christ. That was in Luke 5. Uh, Philip is the next one on our list here. We read of him in John 1, verses 43 to 45. He was of the same city as Simon and Andrew. That would be the city of Bethsaida. And here I need to make a correction from a, a, a sermon several weeks ago. As Jesus was ministering in the synagogue and then peeled, healed Peter's wife's mother, I had mentioned that Peter was of Capernaum because that's where the synagogue was. That is not the case. Peter was of Bethsaida. Either he was living in Capernaum or at least his mother-in-law lived in Capernaum as that's where Jesus was when he healed her. But Peter and Andrew were actually of uh, originally Bethsaida. So if, if, uh, if you had retained that, um, you can change that in your minds. They are of Bethsaida. Likely Philip knew Simon and Andrew well. As a matter of fact, Philip was one of the first to hear and he was very excited and went and told others. Then we have Bartholomew. Now the name Bartholomew was likely not his full name. Like Simon, who was called Bar-Jonah, Simon Bar-Jonah, meaning Simon the son of Jonah, Bartholomew would have been a surname that literally means son of Ptolemy. Son of Ptolemy. That's what Bartholomew would mean. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we find no mention of him by any other name than Bartholomew. But in John, we see another man. And this man comes up in the book of, uh, in, in John chapter 1, and we don't find him again. And many believe that this man, whose name is Nathaniel, is the same man that we have here, Bartholomew. So you perhaps recall that Nathaniel was sitting under a tree when Philip found him, and he confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And Nathaniel gets up and follows Christ. And we, we believe that this Nathaniel from John chapter 1 is Bartholomew, so that just as Peter would be called Simon Barjona, we could perhaps call Bartholomew Nathaniel Bartholomew. Nathaniel, the son of Ptolemy. The next name is Matthew. And it's quite interesting that you find Matthew written in the text here. Because we have already had this man introduced to us in the book of Luke, but his name wasn't given as Matthew in Luke. It was Levi, the publican. However, if you go to the epistle, the the gospel of Matthew, you find that Matthew, the publican, is the publican that was called by Jesus. He's called Levi in the gospel of Luke. And it's interesting that Luke, having called him Levi when he, when he gives the account of the call in Luke 5, now calls him Matthew. By doing so, unless the, his reader had a deeper understanding of the other Gospels, had a deeper understanding of the fact that Matthew's name was actually Levi, there would not necessarily have been a connection in the mind of the reader between this Matthew that was called to be an apostle and Levi the publican that Jesus ate with in Luke 5. And perhaps that is by design, because it really wasn't an issue that 
Matthew was Levi, that Matthew was a publican, unless you're a Jew. And of course, there's a gospel written directly to the Jews to speak on those issues that would be more Jewish in concern, and that was the Gospel of Matthew. So in Luke, it was probably not necessary. I just find it interesting that that Luke switches names there in the text. Uh, Thomas is the next one listed here. He finds his popularity for infamy, right? Doubting Thomas, uh, because he doubted the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. James, the son of Alphaeus, was possibly the brother of Levi, the publican, for in Matthew 9.9, Levi, Matthew, is said to be Matthew, the son of Alphaeus. And so it's quite possible that uh, James is Matthew's brother. Then we have Simon Zealotus, and uh, he's also called Simon the Canaanite. He was not actually a Gentile man. However, this term, the Canaanite or the Zealot, it was a political affiliation. If you've been through our intertestamental class where we study those 400 years between Malachi and Matthew, we did that on a Tuesday night not too long ago, you remember the Zealots were a political group. And they were a group of people that wanted a violent overthrow of Rome. They were deeply opposed to Roman taxation. We might consider them today the same as our sovereign citizens. Those that refuse to pay taxes, those that refuse to connect themselves to the government because they consider it to be an illegal government. That's how these zealots were. They were deeply opposed to Rome, so much so that just a few years after this, in 70 AD, they would create a violent overthrow, and that is what would cause Rome to come in and completely decimate Israel, scatter them to the winds, destroy the temple, and Israel was no more until 1940s. So this was a zealot. And it would have been interesting, would it not? Jesus is choosing his 12, and he chooses Matthew the publican, the tax collector for Rome, and he chooses Simon, the zealot, the man who wants to kill tax collectors. And now they get to live together for the next three and a half years, and then they get to spend their days ministering together as apostles of Jesus Christ. Gives you something to think about. Judas, the brother of James, also named Thaddeus in Matthew 10.3, or Lebeus, surnamed Thaddeus, in Mark 3.18. Some believe he was actually the son of James, not the brother of James. Uh, the fact that brother in our King James Bibles is in italics. Recall, anytime you see something in our King James Bibles that is in italics, that means it's not in the original Greek manuscript. It was supplied by the translator for clarity. So the King James translators think that he was the... Um, brother of James, but it's possible from history that he was actually the son of James. Uh, We can't really know. And then Judas Iscariot, the final one mentioned, mentioned as the traitor, implying that Luke's audience already was somewhat familiar with the account because it doesn't yet explain what, what, what that means that he was the traitor, but Luke just calls him that. So those were the 12. And we continue through the text in verses 17 to 19, we read this. And he came down with them and stood in the plain and the company of his disciples and a great multitude of people out of all Judea and Jerusalem and from the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon, which came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And they that were vexed with unclean spirits and they were healed and the whole multitude sought to touch him for there went virtue out of him and healed them all. So Jesus is doing what he does, right? He is teaching He is healing. The multitudes are following. They desire just to touch him that they might be healed. He is casting out demons. And they're doing this now by a seacoast, the scriptures tell us, of Tyre and Sidon. 
it would have been a hilly area, the most westward area of Israel, closest to the Mediterranean Sea. And now we're going to transition to a particular set of teachings made most famous and most um, clearly articulated in Matthew, chapters 5 through 7. We often call it the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to spend several weeks here. We could spend several more than that, but I, I don't want to get bogged down in it necessarily. Many of the, the thoughts in Matthew 5 through 7 we find in Luke as well, but we also find that the Matthew account seems to be an accumulation of several of Christ's teachings into one, or a particular event where he taught all of those things. But as we read in, in Mark, Luke, and John, those events are actually scattered, or those teachings are scattered throughout Jesus' ministry. So we're going to cover some of them now. Others we'll cover when we get there in the book of Luke. And Jesus begins in verses 20 to 22. And he lifted up his eyes, the text tells us, on his disciples and said, Blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are ye that hunger now, for ye shall be filled. Blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh. Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from their company, and shall reproach you, and shall cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Jesus tells this group of disciples that there's a blessing to be had and, and, and a blessing upon a certain group of people, namely those that are poor, those that are hungry, those who weep, and those who are hated and reproached. Now in the book of Luke we find these recorded without the direct context as to what Jesus is speaking of, but as we go to the book of Matthew we find a, a little more clarity. Uh, here in the book of Luke, right there at the end of verse 22, it says, for the Son of Man's sake. And we understand that Jesus is speaking in a spiritual context here, not a directly physical context. Matthew makes it clear. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness. But the meaning is intended to be the same throughout. We remember that Jesus came to teach men how to be rightly related to God, to teach us the way to God. And the people were there to learn how to have this blessing, and Jesus answers in this way. And he says first, blessed are those, the man who is poor. Now if you take nothing else away from these attributes, understand that Jesus is speaking internally here, not explicitly externally. He isn't saying that, if you, that, that you are, are blessed if you don't have money. That's not the concept here. Now we'll see as we continue through the text, and even as we go into next week and the week after, that Jesus does create a, a link between the things of this world and the dangers that they pose to spiritual things. But it's not having them explicitly it's placing your love upon them. And we'll talk about that in our application today. So it's not inherently that a man without money will be blessed by God, but rather that the man who is in his spirit, poor. He recognizes his own deficiencies. He has set aside the things of this world, and he recognizes his own unworthiness before the Lord, his own incapacity before God. The blessed man is the man that understands his way isn't the best way. The blessed man is the man that understands the tendency of his own heart to love that which God hates. The blessed man is the man who sees himself and his sin the way God sees him and his sin. 
He sees himself as a created being whom God loves, but who is separated from God because God sees sin as evil and repugnant. And let me just say this before I go on, um, just because it, it always bothered me, and so maybe it bothers some of you. Blessed versus blessed. When we sang our song today, we sung about being blessed. Blessed be the name is another song that we sing. When do we say blessed? When do we say blessed? When do we use blessed? When do we use blessed? Blessed is a verb. Blessed is an adjective, adverb, or noun. So if the word is being used in a verbal sense, then it would be blessed. I blessed my neighbor by raking his lawn. If it's used in an adjective, adverbal, noun sense, it's blessed. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The name is blessed. So if if that ever bothered you, um, it bothered me. Now you know. Um, Where was I? Yes. The blessed man is the man who sees himself and his sin the way that God sees him and his sin. And when we are there, our lives will indeed be forever changed. We will long to know him as he longs to know us. We will position our hearts in faith to respond to his way. And our spirits will thus be poor, meek, humble, ready to receive. And the scriptures say, blessed be the poor in spirit for his is the kingdom of God. Blessed are ye that hunger, he says. Once again, we must think beyond the physical and touch the spiritual. We are considering the spirit, not explicitly the body. In Matthew, we see the supplied words, they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. This poverty is a poverty of spirit that causes a man to want that which is greater than he has within himself. And this will lead to a physical This will touch the physical, but we're we're focusing on the spiritual. A desire for that which is beyond me. A hunger and a thirst for something more. A, A longing for knowledge that supersedes my own. We all know that there's something greater out there. We all know that there's something bigger out there. Even the most skeptical at some point in his life has acknowledged the reality that there is something beyond what we perceive with our own senses. Beyond just what we feel and what we see and what we taste. And yet the blessing is not on the person who simply knows that there is something more out there. Not even the person that acknowledges it, but the person who hungers for that for the righteousness of the true and living God, who thirsts for a knowledge of God. And Jesus says that the man who hungers, he will be filled. Jesus said in John six thirty seven, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Jesus would say in Revelation twenty two seventeen, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. Let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take of the waters of life freely. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, for the truth that is in Christ, Jesus says there's a blessing upon you and that blessing is you will be filled. He says, blessed are ye that weep. Again, not an inherent blessing for people that are constantly having a bad time of it. That's not the point. It's a noble grief that is spoken of here. An understanding of our sin and the condition of the world around us. A world that is lost in darkness, not knowing its own way. And for that world and for our own souls, we weep. 
and we do so, we find that one day we will laugh. He says, Blessed are ye when men hate you and separate from you and reproach you and cast you out as evil. And notice the end there, for the Son of Man's sake. Again, this is not a blessing upon you just because you're a jerk and everybody hates you. That's not the point here. The point is not, I'm a, I'm a really, really angry, unpleasant man, and everybody dislikes me, so God's going to bless me. That's not it. It's when you are living out the ideals of the Christ life, and the world hates you for it, that's the blessed life. The highest essence of Christ-likeness. Beyond knowing your spiritual poverty, beyond hungering for the knowledge of God, beyond sorrow for sin of yours in the world around you, the man who walks as Jesus walked, who walks the path that Jesus tread, the man who gladly suffers the indignity and reproaches of Christ, who bears Christ's shame in his own body, the man who for righteousness' sake has been willing to suffer the scorn and hatred and rejection of men. And for we who live in the world and who live righteous lives, even in this, this great country, one of the greatest countries that has ever been on the face of the earth, who, where we have freedom to live with very minimal persecution, it's still there, isn't it? For righteousness' sake. If you will live a godly life in Christ Jesus, there will be those who will hate you. The concept which these verses teach is expressed beautifully in Hebrews 11. We often call this chapter the Hall of Faith. And in this chapter, Paul contrasts a life lived in faith with a life lived in pursuit of the world and its ideals. The whole chapter is filled with example after example after example of men and women who chose the path of following Christ, of faith, above the world, and even above their own lives. We read this in Hebrews eleven thirteen to 16. The, the writer has been speaking of Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah having lived a life of faith. And then he says, These all died in faith, having not received the promise but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country and truly if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, an heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he hath prepared for them a city. They saw the world around them and they said there's something better than this. And with the eyes of faith, they could recognize the reality, the truth of the, the spiritual behind the physical. They sought a better country. They desired better riches than this world had to offer. Their priority was put into righteousness for through righteousness they laid up eternal riches, that which could not fade away, that which would not stay here when they died. These chairs and this pulpit and these things that we have, it's, 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 it's here. It's going to stay here. It's physical but far more real than that which you can touch with your hand. Far more real than that which you can taste when you put food into your mouth is the reality of the spiritual. The fact that one day we will die or the Lord will take us home and when we do, there is a, there's an eternity. And that eternity is built 
on today. That the things that we do for Christ will persist into that eternity. The text goes on to speak. We won't, we won't read all of, all of uh, Hebrews 11 today, but it goes on to speak more of Abraham and then of Isaac and of Jacob, of Joseph, of Moses. And then we read in verses 24 and 25, by faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin. For a season, this is the very essence of what Jesus is saying on the Sermon on the Mount in Luke 6, in Matthew 5. Blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are they who weep. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they who suffer for righteousness' sake. It's the Moses mindset where he is a prince in Egypt. He is in the greatest kingdom on the earth at that time. He has everything his heart could want. And he says, I would rather associate myself with the will of God and the people of God and suffer as a slave in affliction with them than to enjoy these pleasures of sin. Why? Why would he want that more than all of the pleasures that Egypt could offer him? Well, because he saw the pleasures of Egypt and he said these are temporal, but what God's people have, that is eternal. That is eternal. And he made a choice. And he was blessed. And that is the very essence of what we're reading in, in Luke. Far better to suffer for Christ than to, indul- to indulge the pleasures of this world, the pleasures of sin. And they're not the world, the flesh, and the devil, all that is in the world, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, the pride of life. That is what I mean by world. We can be in the world, but not of the world. We can use the world without abusing this world, right? You don't have to go throw away everything that came from a a, a secular company. That's not what we're saying, right? Okay. Why? Why is it better to suffer with Christ than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season? Because there's something so much better, so much more real than this life. This life is a dream which one day we will awaken from into the real, the, the real life, the reality of eternity. So the psalmist would say this, and I think I've quoted it the past two weeks in a row. Let's talk about it again. Psalm 84, 10 and 11. The psalmist said, For a day in thy court, speaking to God, is better than a thousand. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a son and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. David says, I would rather be a doorkeeper, be the most menial servant in God's tents than to have the greatest position in the world. Because God is the sun. He is the light. He is the essence of truth. And he is a shield. He is my protector. He's worthy of that. And it's better for me. Because God does not withhold anything good from them that walk uprightly. If he's withholding it from you, it's because it's not, not what's best for you. This is the essence of Jesus' statement in Matthew 4, 4, is it not? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Do you believe this? Have you ever transitioned your mind to thinking this way, to, to, to having everything put in its proper perspective as related to the spiritual? A spirit-mindedness? Most people don't think this way. 
Many Christians don't even think this way. Will you? Do you? This is the way the Bible teaches us to think. This is how Christ calls us to live. And He promises us a blessing if we will. Are God's words, His commands, are they more important than the things of this world? Is there something more important? Do you live by more than just bread alone? Is there something deeper that sustains you than simply the physical things that are around you? It's often said, the illustration, some of you are fasting today, some of you maybe fasted yesterday for the Rogers. The point of fasting, as we preached that message a little while back, is kind of this idea that there's some, sometimes there's more important things than food. But when you don't eat, there's a longing. Your body tells you, you're not eating, you need to eat something. It's time to eat. Have you ever felt that way in your spirit? When you've not perhaps been faithful coming to church or reading your Bible or, or communing with the Lord in some way and there's just a, it's like you're parched because there's other things in life than just food and water that we need to sustain us, to truly sustain us. Can we throw our whole lives behind the concept that the words of God are are necessary? More necessary, perhaps even, we might say, than food. Certainly than money, than things. Can we echo the words of Job in Job 23.12 where he said, Neither have I gone back from the commandment of God's lips. I have esteemed the words of God's mouth more important than my necessary food. Does your heart burn within you? to trust God's Word so implicitly that if the Bible says it or if the Spirit of God tells you to do it, you will do it because it's what's best. And if you do this, the world will not understand. Some of the world will hate you. Many Christians won't even understand. But that's okay. Because this world is not your home. Because there's someone more important to please than the people around you. Jesus said, in fact, that we are blessed if we endure suffering for righteousness' sake. Throughout the majority of Christian history, true Christ-likeness has been rejected by the world. Certainly, the world loves the fruit of the Christian ethic. Right? When, when uh, the Christian ethic preaches love thy neighbor, they like that. They want that. They want all of the outworkings of Christian morality. They want honesty, integrity, sincerity, truthfulness. These are all outworkings of of Christian principles. They want that. Now, as our society drifts farther and farther away, you can see them drifting to where these things are reprehensible to them. Truth. Personal property. Personal dignity. Personal rights. These things that are baked into God's system are, are, are being rejected. It's a sign of how far our society is getting away from the Lord. How, how much they've rejected biblical truth. But the world wants to believe that being good people has nothing to do with Christ. The world wants to believe that morality and integrity and ethics are ideals that are suited to not just one religion, but to any religion or to no religion at all. But Jesus said, that the, straight is, that, that the gate is straight, that the way is narrow that leads to life. Jesus said that He is the only way, John 14, 6. I, He said, am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No one cometh unto the Father but by me. And the world hates that. They love the Christian ethic. They hate the Christ behind it. Why? Because Christ shines the light of truth into their guilty hearts. And nobody likes to have their sin exposed. Nobody likes to have their sin exposed. We flee from that like cockroaches from light. They hate Christ because they hate the light that Christ brings into their hearts. And they will dislike you for being a bearer of that light. Perhaps you as young people or maybe uh, those that that work jobs or interact with a, a good number of unbelievers have seen this before where you have been around people and they want to do something wrong but you're there and they get angry at you because you're there because now they can't do it wrong or it makes them feel guilty for doing it wrong because you're not going to do it with them. That's the light of truth shining into their dark hearts and they don't like it because it exposes the darkness. They're in the darkness, but if you're in a dark room with a bunch of, uh, with, and everything's dark, then you don't realize the darkness. But if somebody has a flashlight, then you realize you're in the darkness and you don't want to be in the darkness. You want to think that you're in the light without Christ. And so you hate those that have the light because they're exposing your darkness. It's Romans chapter 1. And this has always been. We're seeing it more now in Western culture than perhaps Western culture has ever experienced, at least in the past um, century or so. Where those who believe the Bible is true are seen as a major threat to society. Uh, There are many people today, particularly as this election season has come to a conclusion who are calling fundamentalist Christians of a greater threat than terrorists to our society. I've read it several times over the past few weeks. This should not surprise us. And in many, many cultures, Christians are seen as the enemy. Right now in the Middle East, Christians are dying daily for Christ simply because they claim the name of Christ. And you know, it has always been this way. In the early church, Christians were slandered for the name of Christ. The subsequent centuries, Christians were hunted down and killed for their faith. Through the time of the Inquisition, the true church was hated and killed for claiming the doctrines of Christ. There has only been a very brief window of history, even in the Western world, where true Christianity was accepted by the masses and where it was something that was acceptable uh, in a large scale. And even then, that was only in the Western world. The rest of the world has never been there. To know Christ and to love Christ is to assume the scorn and hatred of those who hate having their sin exposed. And we know this to be true. doesn't mean we will receive all of that scorn and hatred, but we could. And if you are willing, if you have taken up your cross to follow Christ, Jesus says unto you is a blessing, if you will but believe it. And so he says to we, to you, who are living this way, who have assumed the spirit-mindedness. In verse 23, Rejoice ye in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. Do you see the perspective? I can suffer these things in this earth. I can suffer lack. I can suffer... Uh, a, a, you, you take the, the way that the world works, this get-ahead mentality, this materialistic mentality, and you turn it on your head, and that's not what you seek. You seek first the kingdom of God. And I can live this way because great is my reward 
in heaven. You can rejoice. You can leap for joy on that day. You will know that your reward is great. On the day that you are suffering for reproach for Christ, you can put a smile on your face, not because you're suffering, but because great is your reward in heaven. In our day, we who suffer for righteous, for righteousness' sake, we add to the list of thousands of believers who have gone before us who have suffered that same cause. And Jesus promises a reward for we who can assume this mindset, who can see from this perspective. But the opposite is also true, and Jesus warns us of that as we continue through the text. To whatever degree our love for the world and the things of this world override our love for God, we will suffer loss. Verses 24 to 26. Woe unto you that are rich, for ye have received your consolation. Woe unto you that are full, for ye shall hunger. Woe unto you that laugh now, for ye shall mourn and weep. Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. Now again, this is not saying that if you have money, you are in trouble. It's not saying that if your belly is full on any given day, that you have yielded the better part. But what it is saying is, woe unto you who have put your priority, your effort, and your love upon the material at the expense of the physical. Woe unto you who have taken the things of this world and placed them above the things of Christ, who are not willing to suffer for righteousness' sake, who are not willing to yield the things of this life for pursuit of the things of God. Woe unto you who don't have God first. Is the idea, is the essence of this. If you prioritize this life, but your effort uh, and love into this life, you put all of your effort into that, you will do so at the expense of the heavenly and at the expense of the eternal. And Jesus numbers you among those who will suffer loss. And Jesus says, and if you're unwilling to suffer for righteousness' sake, if when that time comes where you are, are to stand for the name of Christ, and you instead choose the path of least resistance where you deny Christ, Jesus says, you're just like the false prophets who have gone before, who talk a good game until it costs you something. God forbid that we should be numbered among them. So we substantiate our context here, the contrast between the physical and the spiritual, not necessarily that you can't be rich or that you can't be full, or that you can't be happy. And the most comprehensive warning of this concept is, is actually found in Luke 16. It'll give us some perspective here. It's still 10 chapters away in our study, so we'll reference it today. Of course, we'll get deeper into it when we get there. We consider it more thoroughly then, but Jesus warns about the importance of being a good steward of our wealth, of knowing that faithfulness with the carnal, with the material, is a benchmark for faithfulness with the spiritual. And he says this in Luke chapter 16, verses 10 through 13. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore ye have not been faithful in, in the unrighteous mammon, in the things of this world, who will commit to your trust true riches? And if ye have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you uh, that which is your own. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You can't have two masters. You can't serve both the spiritual and the carnal. You can have 
secular, carnal things in the context of living out a spiritual life, but you can't serve them both. You can't have two masters. So what does Jesus tell us to do here? Use the carnal to serve the spiritual. Take the carnal things that we have, the material goods, the blessings, the talents that we have, and use them towards spiritual ends. And this is what Jesus calls faithfulness. And then he goes on to say, he gives a parable, in fact. And the parable that we read here is one that we often call the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And we use it for several um, different proofs that gives us an insight into hell and into the afterlife, into um, what happens after a man dies that we don't have in too many other places in Scripture. Of course, uh, the insight that we have here is pre-Christ, so we would believe things changed a little bit. I preached a message on that, I'd say about a year ago. I think it was in December of last year I preached on uh, what we believe about the various portions of the spirit realm. Uh, We'll talk about it again when we get to Luke 16. But we read this in verses 19 to 25. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at the gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lifted up his eyes being in torments and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that Thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. Do you see the contrast here? Now in this case you have a rich man and a poor man. And that's because there's a, a most natural outworking of the concept in this. But what, what we need to key in on here is that the rich man devoted his life while he was still alive. His priority was on the physical. He had devoted himself to the things of this world at the expense of God and his word. And so those things that he had devoted himself to, as he accumulated them, that was his reward. That that was the reward. A reward which could not and indeed does not follow him into eternity. Now on the other hand, Lazarus had none of those comforts. He instead invested himself in the things of God, in eternal riches. And now for eternity he finds comfort in those things which he had chosen at the expense of material gain. That's the moral. And then it goes on to talk about uh, some, some incredibly insightful things about Christ and about belief and unbelief in the heart of man. Uh, but we're not getting into that today. We also find this stern warning in the, in the epistles. Paul says this in 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'll read you verses 6-12. through 12. He says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. But they that will be rich, those that pursue riches with with what they have, fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil. Notice it does not say money is the root of all evil. The love of money, the pursuit of money, being consumed with money is the root of all evil, not money itself. 
which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. Do you see the mindset here? Do you see what he's teaching here? The spirit-mindedness in these concepts. That godliness with contentment is great gain. Blessed is the man who can live a contented life, a godly life. You brought nothing into this world. You can't take it with you. So why are you placing all of your effort, all of your time, all of your energy, all of your investment, this life that is fleeting, that is going by every second that ticks by that you can't get back, and how much of it has been invested in things that are just going to stay here when you die? And how much of it has been invested in the things of eternity? Do you have food? Do you have raiment? Can you be content with that? Can you see everything else that, that, that comes as, as simply the cherry on top, the whipped cream? But if that more comes at the cost of spiritual priorities, if that more, all that more comes at the cost of your family and your church and your spiritual life, it's really not worth it. It's a snare to you. It's stripping from you eternal blessings. Do you believe that? Do you believe enough to do something? To act? To change the way you're thinking and then summarily the way you're acting? They that will be rich, the text says, fall into temptation and a snare into foolish and hurtful lusts. Again, we're not saying that it's wrong to be rich. They that will be rich, they that pursue riches with all of their being, they whose goal in life is power and honor and riches and the things of this world will fall into a snare, into temptations. The pursuit of riches can destroy spiritual potency. It can have a disastrous spiritual effect on you and on those who follow you or love you. Some of us have witnessed this firsthand. Others may have some experience with it right now. The man of God Paul says, flees these things, follows after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. How many men and women in this world have sold their very souls for success? Let us not be numbered among those who have taken the physical and elevated it above the spiritual. When you, when, when you, you put the spiritual above the physical, that, that's a spirit-mindedness, a priority upon the, the spiritual. Three questions as we close today. We've, we've hit a lot and, and uh, some application has been scattered throughout, but three questions as we close today. Question number one. It's not a very uh, formal question. It's kind of uh, casual here. Do you believe this stuff? Do you believe this stuff? Don't, don't trust me on these things. We've read the verses. You know what the Bible says. Go look at it in context. Read it for yourself. If you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit indwelling to teach you these things. It's not a matter of whether or not the Bible says it because the Bible does. It's not a matter of whether or not it's true because the Bible is true. But it is a matter of whether or not you're actually willing to believe it. Willing to bet your life on it. Willing to structure your life around this kind of thinking. 
Are you willing to commit your life to this teaching? Are you willing to place this world on the altar of God's word because you're fully persuaded that this blessedness that Christ teaches is far better than what those ads on TV and on those billboards and on the internet promise you you can have in happiness and in joy? I mean, is that not the essence of advertising today? If you get this, you will be happy. You will finally be fulfilled until you get it and you realize that it was just a hollow, empty shell of what you're actually longing for. Again, I'm not saying you can't have those things. But if those things are what you are seeking for fulfillment, for love, for joy, for desire, for any of that, you will find nothing but emptiness there. It's a matter of whether or not you're willing to believe this. Has this truth sunk down deep enough that this is actually the way you think, how you evaluate life? Has it changed your life? If it hasn't, it needs to. Are you acting in a a manner consistent with the example that Christ set? See, because this is the essence of what it means to be a a follower of Christ, right? To, To follow him. We'll talk about that more in two weeks. Is all that you are on the altar of who Christ is? Do you have a mindset of spirit-mindedness? Secondly, are you willing to suffer reproach for Christ? We read some verses in Hebrews 11 that considered the blessedness of which Christ spoke. I'd like to read you just a few more here in Hebrews 11, verses 32 to 40. And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah, of David also and Samuel and of the prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned the flight of the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trials of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, they were tempted, were slain with the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, parentheses, of whom the world was not worthy. Every time I read that phrase, even just now, a chill goes down my spine. I love that phrase. Some of these people had great times, right? They, they escaped the mouths of lions. Widows had their children raised from the dead by faith. Others did not. The physical circumstances are not the point here. The point is they had a mindset that said Christ first, God first, the spiritual above the physical. I believe it. And God says when you have that mindset, the world is not worthy of you. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. They didn't receive the promise. What promise? Do you realize you have something that all of them did not have? You have the Holy Spirit indwelling. They longed for it. But they never received it. Not not while they lived this earth. We have thus a better way. We have the God of the universe, His Spirit within us, 
to help us, to guide us, to assure us of these things. In a manner of speaking, faith is easier than it ever was for the Old Testament saints. And for we who are ready for that something better, who are ready for something more than the things of this life, Paul goes on in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, to say this. Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is what Jesus did. He is in Gethsemane, and he's crying and praying, and drops of blood are falling from him. And he says, Lord, if it be possible, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. What was he doing there? He was saying, I don't want to go through this, but the spiritual end is far greater than the material suffering. And so what does he tell us to do? Lay aside the weight and lay aside the sin. If it's encumbering you, if it's getting in your way, I don't care if it's what you've built your entire life upon to this point. If it's encumbering you from becoming what Christ wants you to become, get it out of your life. It's worth it. Because blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are they which do mourn. Blessed are they which suffer for righteousness' sake. Finally, is the material getting in the way of the spiritual in your life? There are some people in here who have chosen the material over the spiritual. And we can't just draw a line between the haves and have-nots. We can't say, okay, if you make this much, go to this side of the room. If you don't, then go to that side of the room. You guys have a problem. You don't, right? We can't do that. There are some people in here who have plenty of means, yet everything that they have is submitted to Christ. There are others in here who don't have much means at all and perhaps you're not submitted to Christ. Those who are consumed with having stuff or getting rich, you can't be bothered to, to, to spend time with your family and to raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord or to spend time with your church and to sharp, uh, allow iron to sharpen iron or to spend time in the Word of God or to spend time in prayer because you're too busy securing for yourself your future. There are some young people in this room whose thoughts are consumed with the material. And as you think ahead towards the future and, and what the future has for you, it's wholly in the context of the material, of money and of things and of situations and of your wants. You haven't even thought about what God wants for you. You haven't even thought about the way God wants you to go. Now, we all know it takes money to live, but have you stopped to ask what God wants for you? Here's the thing. If you're doing what God wants you to do, if you're where God wants you to be, you will never lack what you need. And beyond that, you will never be happier. You may not have all the stuff that you could have provided for yourself and for others if you had devoted your life to the, to the things of this world. But you're being obedient to God and there's a blessing there. Do you care about how God sees, thinks of, of, of the things you do, of how you spend your time, how you spend your money? Does you, do your investments of time, treasures, and talents begin with prayer? 
Does your decision for what job to take or how many hours to work or, or, uh, or, or where, where to go, what to do, does it begin with prioritizing God? If we believe that God loves us and he has a plan for us, if we believe his word is true, if we believe that we cannot do better than God's best for us, then are we living that way? Our actions will, be reveal, will reveal what is in our hearts. If, if money and things and wealth consume our time and our desire and our heart, our plans for the future, if, if, if that is what is our priority, well, then you'll know because you'll see it in your life. And if that is indeed the case, you're missing out on what Christ has prepared for those who love him. And that means, and follow me here, that means that you are not experiencing the fullness of joy which Christ has designed for you to live in. So are you missing out? Do you believe these things? Don't believe me. Read the Word of God. It's true, but you have to decide whether you're going to believe it. Are you going to believe it? How will, how will you know when you believe it? Because your actions will reflect it. Jesus begins this sermon today with a call for his disciples to follow. It's a call to a different way of thinking. Again, it's not a call for you to sell everything you have and to live on the street. It's not a call for you to quit your job and to become poor. It's not a call for you to not want to provide for your family. It's not a call for you to reject the reality that we live in a physical world, it is a call for you to place the spiritual above it. Spirit-mindedness. Where God leads, I will follow. If that means sell all and follow, I will do so. If it means gain a great deal so I can bless God's people through it, I will do so. Whatever it means, I will do it. It's on the altar. It's on the table. It's God's. So that when we look at how we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we make our money, where, where we, we invest ourselves, we recognize everything to be simply an extension, a tool that God has in God's toolbox for you to bless God's people, to reach others with the gospel, and to serve Christ. And if they become more than that, they've become too much. Let's close in prayer.